This is Tommy Bowman, co-founding pastor of Mission Church and host of the Redefining Church podcast. The mission of this podcast is to guide local churches towards a movement of Jesus. This is Redefining Church. Well, hey guys, welcome to the show and thank you for a great kickoff of season two. We talked about last week, three filters for your fall plan. And as we get into episode two, it would mean a lot to me if you would share episode one on your social media. Uh, And if you didn't know, these episodes are also on YouTube. So if you want to see me, and hear me. Uh, the link uh, to my channel will be in the show notes. So please subscribe to Apple Podcasts and rate and review there. Follow along on Spotify if that's where you listen and consider subscribing to the YouTube channel. You guys are the best. For today's episode, I am going to share with you a conversation I had with Todd Bolsinger. Todd is the founder of the Leadership Formation Program at Fuller Theological Seminary. He served as the vice president of Fuller uh, seminary for six years and is the senior fellow of the Dupree Center for Leadership. He is a magnificent author um, who writes not only from a place of theory, but from experience because he has pastored for 27 years. His two latest books are Leadership for a Time of Pandemic, pretty timely, and also Tempered Resilience. I will put links to both of those in the show notes as well. Um, What Todd and I discussed, though, was his book, Canoeing the Mountains, Christian Leadership in Uncharted Territory. Uh, Our staff has been reading this book since June, uh, one chapter at a time. It has been so monumental for us to read this together, to discuss this together. If I could give you guys a... Uh, as pastors, a book for redefining church for movement, what we talk about in this podcast, it would be this book. Uh, You got to get it. Um, I'll leave the link for this book as well. It has affirmed so much for us at Mission Church, the work that we've been up to the past three years. And it's also challenged us in new ways as we continue to redefine church for movement. And so I'll be back on at the back end of this episode. But for now, enjoy my conversation with Todd. Well, hey, Todd, welcome to the Redefining Church podcast. It is great to have you with us. Why don't we, before we get into this interview, why don't you tell us uh, where you're at? Tell us a little bit about uh, you, your family, your life, kind of anything as an introduction. Thanks. Thanks, Tommy. So um, after 27 years of serving in the church for the last six and a half years, I've been back at Fuller Seminary where I got my degrees, both my MDiv and my PhD, served on the senior administration for the past six and a half years, and then just this last week, transitioned to a new initiative that I get to start that where we're going to work as directly and closely as we can with pastors leading through change. And so I get to start a new church leadership initiative. Um, I have a wife, Beth, who is a marriage and family therapist and an executive coach and an artist. She's the polymath of the family. And um, we have a son who lives in Seattle and uh, works on environmental studies issues around public policy and a daughter who is a youth pastor in Texas. And so um, she and her husband live in Austin and we have a group chat that keeps us connected to each other and um, and an 80 pound Bernese mountain (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Bernie's mountain dog wow. who um, goes with us. We uh, At the moment, we're at our place in Idaho where we spend a lot of time outside. So she's loving that. Wow, that's awesome. So not much going on, it sounds like. 
<laughs> you're still canoeing the mountains uh, it sounds like well as i said in the introduction guys uh we're going to talk about this book it has been so big for our team and our staff even if it weren't for this pandemic this would have been so catalytic for our team it applies even more so um to this year so todd let's just get into this book uh, i really want our listeners to check it out uh, after this uh, episode, but what from your life in ministry and leadership inspired uh, a book on leading in uncharted territories, a book like Canoeing the Mountains? Talk to us about what inspired this book. Yeah, yeah. So um, it, it was my own experience of pastoring a church that I loved. I mean, actually, God gave me the desire of my heart. I wanted to pastor a community and raise my kids in that community. And the church um, took me when I was 33 as their senior pastor. And um, my kids were three years old and three uh, three months old. And um, and we had a wonderful experience. I mean, I loved being their pastor. Mm-hmm. And about, um, oh, about 10 years into the process, we were doing great by almost every metric. I mean, we're not, we weren't a mega church or anything, but we were a growing, thriving church. And all of a sudden I realized there was this kind of internal crisis that I didn't understand, which was while we were doing well in all the metrics that everybody said, um, we were getting less engagement from our most mature, committed people. And they were getting, in one sense, kind of more burned out. And I couldn't figure it out. So um, what we did is I actually ended up calling a person to be a coach for me and a consultant. I had some funds that I could set aside for consultant. And I said to them, if you come up with some answer that says, like, you got to write a new vision statement, I'm going to fire you and talk (laughs) bad about you because that is not it. I know that's not it, but it is something. And I just don't know what it is. And what it basically led me to is this process where I needed to learn to lead in a different day than I had been leading in before. Mm -hmm. And it led me in a longer process about studying adaptive leadership and, 10 years later, I was writing a book on it myself because I led a couple of change processes in our denomination and coached a bunch of coaches, churches and leaders. And that's kind of changed my whole trajectory of my ministry. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Listeners, if you would, you probably don't remember, but episode one of the last season, how I kicked off this podcast was my story of what you just shared. It was 2013. Yeah. Mission Church was five years old and all the metrics were exactly what we set out to. And I had what I called this gift of disorientation, this like crisis of church of like, Oh my gosh, I'm leading effectively in a direction, but I'm not sure it's the right direction. And I know our listeners can relate to that, uh, that experience. So good. Um, Right out of the gate in in the first chapter of the book, you, you talk about how seminary might, not have prepared you or it didn't prepare you for exactly what you expected when it comes to leading the church. A lot of our listeners are seminary grads. So then what is required when it comes to leading Mm -hmm. in uncharted territories? If seminary didn't fully prepare you, then what is it that is is required? And, uh, and what did you experience that our listeners might be experiencing right now in their leadership? Yeah, so it, it was um, it was interesting. It was my own internal experience, and I didn't really have a name for it because I had both an MDiv and a PhD mm-hmm. from a seminary that I love that I, I now work for. Um, what I realized then is when I started talking to other people, like when I started coaching other churches and leading change processes in my denomination, what I would get is pastors whispering to me, like, I am, mm-hmm. seminary didn't prepare me for this. 
And what it, if you think about it, what seminary does, I always say that, you know, everybody who comes to seminary, somebody told them, you're the best Christian I know. You should go pro. And, you know, you should go off to professional <laughs> Christian school and, and do this for a living. And what they do is they come and, and what we teach them how to do is we teach them how to preach the scriptures, which is really important. And we teach them how to organize and run programs, which is really important. And we teach them how to do pastoral care. But all of that assumes that it starts in a structure where people show up for our research, yeah. our resources. Yeah. Like, like it's, they, they show up and we preach, we program, we do pastoral care. What I didn't understand, what was shifting dramatically, is that the place of the church in our culture is no longer some assumed that anybody would just show up. Mm. And so now, of course, we're in this missional culture, and almost none of us were prepared for that cult for that. And even if we trained people in whatever those skills were, what you started realizing is that deep down inside, that's not what people signed up for. Mm. And so there was this crisis that was happening. Like, and so the, the, the book, Canoe in the Mountains, is about a group of river explorers trying to find a water route who then run into mountains. <laughs> and are told, hey, you have to choose. Do you want to canoe or do you want to explore? Because mm. if it's really about exploring the world, then that means dropping the canoes. But if you built those canoes with your hands, and if you were an expert water rafter, and all of a sudden you're told we're going to burn your canoes and you're going to have to walk or find horses, it's a totally different experience. And that's where most pastors are. And so what pastors need today is not necessarily what seminary does. It's a lifetime of training, not seminary pre-preparation. Mm. A lifetime of, re, of learning, of dealing with loss, and of navigating mm. uncharted territory where the primary experience is one of, that I have to learn as I go. Mm. And, and that's really hard. I mean, ex- experience now is not necessarily the same as expertise. Mm. That's and so that's good. really hard for most of us. That's so good. As you went into Fuller and, and as you're, you've been teaching for so long now, how have you introduced uh, moments of experience and not just expertise? I'd be curious as, as you've led and, and yeah. taught, how have you done that? Well, part of it is... Um, like I can remember sitting, I've told this story a lot to my students. I can remember sitting in front of my session, which is the, I'm a Presbyterian, so that's the board of, you know, that runs the church, yeah. and saying to them, I know we have some challenges in front of us, and I can't preach any better than I preach. <laughs> so if your answer is preach a really good sermon series yeah. or to be funnier or whatever, the answer is I'm the wrong person. Mm. And what most churches do at that moment is they get a new pastor. And what actually what they need to recognize is what they need to do is become a community that together can learn through this moment what we need to do. And so what I so what my experience brought was um, being a disciple means being a learner. Now being a leader means being a learner. Mm. And being a leader means leading the discipleship community to continually learn, which starts with your capacity to stand up in front of a group of people and say, we have a challenge in front of us and I don't mm. know what it is but we are going to go through it together. Mm. And that's, and, and experience gives you the confidence of being able to do that. But the hardest part is you got to look at people who want your expertise and you have to disappoint them. I always say that, you know, the, my favorite quote on yeah. leadership from Ronald Heifetz is leadership is disappointing people at a rate they can absorb. And yeah. that's, 
the hard part about that is it's disappointing your own people. That's the hard part about the whole thing. Yeah, so good. Yeah, you bring up that quote a lot in the book and it's it's good. Our team uses it all the time. And I love what you just shared. I mean, we all know about the importance of vulnerability, but I think we and our listeners, we um, we don't give it the credit it needs to like... When you go up in front of your people and just let them know, hey, yeah, I went to seminary. Yeah, yeah, I probably studied the word maybe more than you, but I'm, I'm human just like you. And I actually don't know how to lead what's ahead, but I trust the spirit of God in me and in our church. And we're going to do this. How much that inspires people and even kind of provides some freedom because it can't, it can't be on one guy and in, in, in the preaching. So, so good. Um, you get into a chapter on culture and organizational DNA. And we all know the, um, the famous statement that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And, it, and it's so true. Uh, something that you wrote that I, I want to just make sure I get right. You said that in times of stress and change, churches have a default functioning. Uh, you call it the organizational DNA. And it dominates. So it always exists. But you point out that it dominates in times of stress and change. And what I've you know, we've been saying through this pandemic is it's not that new things have become true of organizations. It's that what is true is just coming out. It's being revealed like never before. So pastors are six months into leading through this. Talk about uncharted territory. What could or should pastors right now be taking away from the last six months regarding what they've seen in and through their church? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, so this is the, that's the right question, by the way, Tommy, Mm. like what, if I could get pastors to do anything at this moment, it's to stop thinking I have to solve the pandemic Mm, and instead think in terms of seeing my church accurately. Mm. So if I see myself accurately, you can build on that. So, so the way to think about this is your core DNA are your actual values. And I don't mean good or bad. What I mean is they're not your aspirational values. So if I come to your church and I visit you and you tell me how you're a church that is deeply committed to, um, you know, planting new churches and you don't show me any churches you've planted. It's not a value. <laughs> like, right, exactly. Like, like, you know, I was said, like, so I'm, I'm out of the more evangelical tribe of the church. And, and literally I had to confront that the, that I pastored churches where we hadn't, we hadn't had many adult baptisms. <laughs> like, so how many people were we sharing the good news really with? Yeah. So then instead of feeling shameful and saying, well, we should do it, that almost doesn't do you any good. Instead, come back and talk about what you actually are mm. and think about that in your actual core values, there is something of value that if you can adapt it in a healthy direction, it becomes the gift that you can give to your community. Mm. So good. And that language is really important in adaptive change because what you're talking about is adapting the healthiest part of who you are, dismissing the unhealthy parts, solving them, addressing them, but taking the, the, the healthiest part of who you are and then saying there's something in there that is a gift to our community that we are going to bring missionally forward. So good. Yeah. You referenced Patrick Lencioni talking about values. If you guys want to learn more, his book, The Advantage talks a lot about that. Mm -hmm. But I think too, we've talked about it on this podcast. uh, We stole our initial values from the church that helped plant us, reaching, restoring, and reproducing. We're like, these are great. They were aspirational. And then we're like, oh man, we're terrible at the reproducing thing. It's not really a value. And then we, we actually looked at our culture and we looked at our hearts and what God put in our hearts. We're like, we really value gathering, growing, and going. 
let's not only make those our values, but let's measure them now. And so Mm -hmm. I think you would agree. I want to give you pastors and listeners the freedom to really look at your values. And yeah, maybe they've been a part of your church for 20 years and you're scared to take them off your website, but feel the freedom to do that and actually call your values what are your values. And chances are how you've reacted and responded and led the last six months through this pandemic, like the top three ways you've led. I don't know what you would say, but I would say those are probably your values. Yeah. So here's one of the things. This is an exercise when I consult. Yeah. This is the simplest exercise for getting at values. This is what I tell people to do. Um, so just to understand this story, um, my grandfather's name is Guido Evangelisti. <laughs> like literally, like like here on the wall, that's his. It's a picture from the village he came from that I took when I visited his village in Antrocoli, Italy. Um, so it's my mom's side of the. That's why my name doesn't matter, yeah. right? It's my mom's side. Of the I'm surrounded by he Italians had, he here came, in Chicago, so I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. So he came to the United States through Ellis Island, the whole thing, as a 17-year-old, ended up opening an Italian restaurant with my grandmother where I was babysat when I was a kid. Mm. He had two huge values passed on. One was family that is cultivated around food. Mm. Our meals, our family meals are our legend. The second is education. He just believed that if you got a good education, you could be anything. Pass that down to us. Well, so now my generation, you know, I'm his grandchild, I'm 56. My generation, we have passed down those family recipes and we have those family dinners. We did family dinners with our kids and we have education. There's like 20 earned degrees in my family generation. It's amazing. Now, here's the important thing to know. My grandfather died when he was 60 and I never knew him. Mm-hmm. So those values were passed down without him actually passing them down. That's how deeply they are embedded. And second, because I'm 56 and my kids aren't in a hurry to give me grandchildren, I'd like to live longer than him. I can't eat the way he ate at those family meals. So we've had to adapt all our family recipes. So what my grandfather ate on Tuesday, we now call Christmas. <laughs> like that Once a year, right? And what, I'm, what, I, what it points to is your values endure and they have to adapt. Mm. Now, how do you get to those values in your church? the way I just told you, you tell stories. Mm. So what I tell people is don't gather with a group of people around a whiteboard and say, so what are our values? Instead, gather a group of people around dinner tables, because I'm Italian, and tell stories. Tell stories about when you were the most animated, the most excited, Mm. the most alive, why you came here, why you stopped church shopping. When you tell those stories and cultivate those stories together, pretty soon you start getting your actual values. Mm then make those the healthiest values that can be a gift to your community. Mm, So good. And that made me hungry too, by the way. So (laughs) great story. Um, Perhaps my favorite part of the book, uh, mostly because it really speaks my language, you talked about constancy and consistency. So you said, if constancy is the hallmark of a trustworthy leader, then consistency is the hallmark of a trustworthy leader system, which is great. Um, so I have here the listeners of this podcast, uh, to some degree, they want to see a movement of Jesus, like flow, this missional movement flow in and through their church. You know, we talk on this podcast about being fueled by the why. You have a chapter called The Mission Trumps, mm-hmm. but pointed towards this clear uh, vision and then working strategies. So when it comes to consistency and constancy, uh, where does that come in when it comes to achieving that end, that vision of, of a movement of Jesus yeah. through their church? Where, what's the role that that plays? 
Yeah. So think about this. This is the irony, right? People trust you when you're constant, which is my way of saying as a leader, you show up congruently. You show up the same way. So I used to always say, you know, I pastored in a relatively small town. It was a small beach town. And what was really important is if someone passed by my house when I'm watering my lawn, that it looked that I was the same person they would meet on a Sunday morning. Like that was really important in my community. Cause if not, that would get out quick. Yeah, it would just yeah. get out quick. Right. So I needed to be the same person showing up with a sense of congruence, relational congruence is the way I talk about that, that constancy in an organization. That means that you live out your values consistently. Now what's weird is how does constancy and consistency lead to change? Because change by definition disrupts all that oh, we used to be doing this, now we're doing this. Mm. Wait a minute, I thought you'd say you'd be consistent. And what you're trying to say is, at the deepest level, we are being as consistent as we possibly can. These are our values. This is what matters. Here's what our mission is. We are changing because the environment Mm. is changing. And in order to live this out, we have to do this. And it should make sense, even when it's disappointing people. Mm. So as a church, when we said we are going to be a multi-generational congregation, that meant that we were not as hip as the young church down the street and we were not as traditional as the older church on the hill. And we disappointed everybody who wanted those two extremes because what we said is our big value was you, this should be a church where you, where four generations can worship together. Wow. If great grandma is still alive, she should be able to hold a baby in her arms in our congregation and her great-grandchild. We, that's going to mean sac- sacrifice by a lot of people and a lot of things they wish they would have. But that's what makes us different. And we can bless the church down the street. We can bless the church on the hill. And we can be ourselves. But it also means we are changing to continue to make that happen. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, and in a world that's always changing, perhaps no more than, than now, I've always felt like when we show up consistently, that's a way we actually can build trust with our people. Yes. And I love what you just reminded our listeners of is if you stay constant and consistent on the, the end game, the vision, here's where we're going, you can adapt how we get there and people will go with you if they truly trust. It's, that's very different than saying, oh, well, now we're going in this direction. And now we're going, if you keep the vision and the end game the same, you actually allow a lot of freedom to adjust and adapt the plan. Is that what you're, yeah. 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 So, so like, the, so the story in Canoeing the Mountains is about Lewis and Clark, yep. who were told they were to find a water route that would connect the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean, and a water route that everybody assumed was there. They all thought it was there. Ships had come up the Columbia River far enough. Others had gone up the Missouri River far enough. They knew there was a water route. They just need to find the connection. So when they get to the to the source of the Missouri River at the Lemhi Pass between Montana and Idaho, and they find the Rocky Mountains in the way. They have a decision to make. Are we about water routes or are we about discovery? Mm -hmm. Their job was to discover a water route and that was an economic thing, but their deeper value was we're gonna discover a whole new world. So that's why they could ditch the canoes. And everybody that, remember, everybody on the trip came because they were good at rivers. <laughs> and, so, and they had to say to everybody who's good at rivers, actually, we're not about rivers, we're about exploring. Mm. So this is why we're going to move forward. And that's where we are today in the church. It's literally saying the church is no longer about membership, about who's here. Like I, I actually, I had, a, I had a Silicon Valley consultant say to me, nobody cares about your company. He was talking about company. And nobody cares if your company survives, 
what they care about is if your company cares about them. Mm. Nobody cares if your church survives. Nobody cares if your school survives. What they care about is if you are here to care about what they care about. Yeah. Well, all of a sudden now we start asking ourselves whole different questions. It can't just be, how does my church survive the pandemic? It has yeah. to be, does my community care whether we survive? Yeah. So good. Yeah. When you pastors out there, when you're leading at any time, but especially through, through 2020, like for us, our vision is a movement of Jesus in the 10, our 10 towns in our lifetime. One of the ways we did that was we gathered people on the weekend. Well, that got taken away. But our vision isn't to gather people. That was just a way that we got people to a movement of Jesus. And so like, like Todd's saying, you got to keep coming back to the vision. Why are, you set, why are you setting out and exploring in the first place? How you've set out to do it, that can change, but always come back to why did you take to that mountain in the first place? So good. So good. You, you have a chapter uh, called uh, Mission Trumps. So good. All about mission and the, and the uh, importance of the conviction of a mission. One of your quotes is so good. You say, leadership isn't so much skillfully helping a group accomplish what they want to do. Leadership is taking people where they need to go, which pastors, you know, where they need to go and where they want to go aren't actually, they're rarely, they're rarely the same. So for pastors who truly desire to lead a church where they're equipping people to be ministers of the gospel in their local context, in their neighborhood, in their communities. What does transformational leadership look like in this case? And how does the church's mission play a critical role in that? Yeah. So you're, in one sense, your mission is your reason for being, mm. right? You're, that's your reason for being. So um, that's your why. This is why we exist. And I often think about this, that every congregation needs to wrestle deeply with that question. Because this, yes, there's the larger issue. Like I do believe that the purpose of the church is to be the embodiment of Jesus's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, right? That is what it's supposed to be about. It's about seeing the reign of God flourish everywhere. But that's going to happen differently in different places. And this is a place where our Catholic brothers and sisters can help us because they have different orders, you know, like the Franciscans, the Benedictines, the Jesuits. And each of those are under the Catholic church, but they have a different, what they call charism. They have a different gift. So if you're a Dominican, you become there because you believe in the that preaching is the most important. And for Benedictines, it's about work and prayer. And Franciscans, it's about simplicity and hospitality. And Jesuits, it's about doing anything for the glory of God. Like Jesuits literally were the only monastic order that did not take a vow of stability. They didn't stay in a monastery. They scattered as missionaries. Really different under one mission. So the question that churches have to grapple with is, what is our charism? What's our gift? And how do we embody that in such a way that this is why we exist? If this went away, we should go away. Like this, and so we adapt to do that. And I think one of the reasons why I talk about the mission, and it's interesting, you know, I wrote the book in 2000, this chapter in 2013, or I never would have said the mission trumps because it would have been too, con too com uh, controversial today. But what we're really saying is it's not what the pastor says, and it's not taking a poll of the congregation and it's not deciding what everybody else is. It's literally discerning. This is why we exist. The pastor's job is to be committed to that. The congregation needs to be equipped for that. The community needs to experience that. And that's what we're responsible for. So good. Yeah. That's funny that you mentioned that back in 2013. Um, yeah. You know, I, we've, 
every everyone always has people leave their church. It's just part of the nature mm-hmm. of things. And I think I've said in a few episodes here, um, I celebrate privately when people leave because of us sticking to our conviction of how we're helping people find and follow Christ, our mission. It's sad when people leave for nuances of the church that they don't like, but I actually think if they can't get down with your why, your mission as a church, that's actually something to, obviously you don't throw a party when people leave. There's, There's a sadness to it, but that's why you want people to leave is because they're not in line with the conviction and the why or the mission of, of your church. It's really good. Yeah. Speaking of, you go ahead. Were you going to say something? Well, I was going to say that the hardest part, I mean, it, it, I, I hate when people left my church. Yeah, yeah. I, li- I said, I lived in a small town. I would run into them. There was always awkward. <laughs> it felt bad. It, there's no way to, to not feel like I was disappointing them. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is um, the worst part isn't people leaving. The worst part is people staying mm. and trying to sabotage the mission you're committed to. Mm. And what is, and what is, I mean, I wrote a whole new book on resilience because everywhere I went to talk about canoeing the mountains, what people really wanted to talk about was sabotage. Mm. Like I said, that the, ever, the, the, the person who invited me to come speak to the 150 clergy would take me to dinner and say, here's the problem. I don't have a single person in that room who has the stomach to do what you just said. Mm. (laughs) And so, so I've had to work on and think about the notion that the hardest thing isn't the external challenges. It's not the mountains. The hardest thing is the internal resistance of the very people who asked you to lead them. Okay, let's, and that's what sabotage let's stay is. on that because our, our team, literally, we read that chapter together this week. We discussed it this, this morning. I think it's chapter 13. So mm-hmm. um, pastors, we all know it. Maybe you haven't admitted it, but there are saboteurs. There's people who are, and they don't even mean harm. They just, they're, there's, yeah. it's gonna, there's sabotage coming your way. The question is, are you ready for it? Are you prepared for it? Um, you talked about too, which really stood out to me is I think most pastors are people pleasers. I am the worst of them all or the best of them all, depending on how you look mm-hmm. at it. But I've had those meetings and I, I've taken it so personally when they're, it's really not about me. It's about maybe the direction of the church. So let's just talk about sabotage. We all go yeah. through it as leaders. Yeah. What, what would you say to our listeners yeah. about that? Well, the, the, the first thing about sabotage is to realize that it is normal. Mm. It happens 100% of the time. Uh, Ed Friedman, who first, the first person who talked about it, said, you cannot think you have been successful once you've accomplished a change. You have to accomplish the change, then survive the sabotage, then you are successful. And if you don't believe me, ask Moses. I mean, we actually see this. Uh, when I get asked to preach, which I mean, I preached every week for 27 years, and now I preach infrequently. But usually one of the texts I preach on is Exodus 14 through 16, where literally Moses had to grapple with his people who kept wanting to go back to slavery. Like Red Seas on one side, the chariots are coming. Oh my gosh, we should have stayed. They get through the Red Sea, they get to the other side, great celebration. Six weeks later, they're saying, you know, we're hungry. They, they killed our children, but at least we had leeks and onions for lunch. <laughs> Let's go back. Like, it's normal. That's the first part. The second part is to realize this isn't the bad things that evil people do. It is the human things that anxious people do. Mm. Sabotage comes out of people's anxiety. And I know that because I've been the saboteur. Hmm. When I get anxious, I want to stop what God is doing. I want to camp in this moment. I want to go back. As you see this happening in the church, left and right, people are like, when can we get back to normal? 
I, I just want to say, if, if you can get, if I could get any of your listeners to do two things, yeah. get rid of the word back to normal, that phrase out of your idea and get rid of the idea that you're going to reopen the church. Yeah, that's good. The church is open and it is heading toward a new normal. Mm. And that is our missional direction. And that is painful because everybody who wants us to go back wants to go back because it was good. They liked it. And everybody who wants us to reopen, it's because we want to go back to what was good that we liked. That's sabotage. Sabotage does mm, that. Mm. So good. Yeah. So churches, as you are t- you know, talking about your fall plans or what 2020, uh, 2021 is going to look like, take, take that advice. Don't say back you know, to normal. Don't even use the word back. Use language like the way forward. You know, this is where we are going. Yep. And which Todd put, points out in his book a lot, expect sabotage. And, and if you don't get it, you probably aren't leading people forward yeah. to take new ground. So yeah. 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 Our leadership is actually leading people who are sabotaging us into their own transformation. <laughs> so good. So good. Um, I want to ask this too, because church is about people and we're talking about people and we lead people, uh, but you have a chapter on some of these necessary relationships that we have as we lead and pastor. Mm-hmm. You call them allies, confidence, opponents, senior authorities, casualties, and dissenters. And I think it's really important. This was super helpful to just have those categories because they all need to be led uniquely. Uh, so what the question I have is how might pastors be mishandling any of these six relationships and how should they be intentionally leveraging some of these relationships that perhaps they're not? Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, um, so this is a work of Ronald Heifetz and Marty Linsky. This is not, I took this work from them. It's really helpful. And, and why that's helpful is it helps us realize that leading change is a relational activity, right? We are, we lead relationally. And this is important for us as pastors because many of us connect leadership and relationships as different. We disconnect them. So we often see this in language like, say, here's here's my favorite images. I'm a shepherd, not a leader. I shepherd my flock. I protect them from the wolves. I take care of them. Well, in the Old Testament, shepherds are all military leaders. Mm. Look it up. <laughs> like they, what the point is, is that the shepherd, the leader who is the shepherd is the leader who loves and cares for the sh- sheep whom they are leading into battle. Mm. So what we're reminded of is that our mission is still most important. We just love our people through that process of the mission, which is why this is so hard. So when you take these six categories, what you're really doing is you're saying different people show up in different ways. And so let me just say the one I think is the most important confusion for most pastors. It is the difference between confidants and allies. Mm. So you need people in your ministry who are your allies. They are the people who stand shoulder to shoulder with you and say, I am committed to that mission with you. And they are so committed to the mission at times, they're not even noticing you, but they're next to you. That's different than confidants. Confidants are the people who say, I got your back. I care more about you. If you ever need to take a break, boss, let's take a break. Mm. Like they care about more about you than they do about the mission. You need both and you need to not confuse them. Wow. That's super helpful because I, you know, the, the mission and the vision and the values on our wall, they're like my kids. Like that's how much I care about them. And and there's been times where I wanted people, Lisa in my church to love that more than they even love me. And I think what stood out 
about this chapter, and I talked about this with our staff, is how much I need to appreciate more the confidants in my church who come beside me. And they might not be as sold out to what's on the wall as I am yet, but they're putting their arm around me. They're encouraging me. They're taking me out for meals, for coffee. And it just really helped me understand why both are important. Question, just because I'm curious, would you say I try to continue to lead that confidant to become an ally or just let it lie where they may? How would you answer that? Well, so I had, so I, I tell the story because I have a person in my life who was like this. I, I was, he was, um, he's older than me. Uh, when my kids were in elementary school, his kids were teenagers. When his kids were getting married, my kids were teenagers. He has been, he was the person who, when I started thinking about that, maybe there was a new call in my life. He was the one person in the church I started talking to about it. Um, he cared more about me than he cared about the church. I kept asking him to be in church leadership because he was a respected businessman in the town. Everybody loved him. He, like, like, I thought, oh man, if this guy comes on my board, it's going to be great. He would look at me over and over again and say, Todd, I don't care about that stuff as much as you do. I care about you. I care about Beth. I care about your kids. I love you. I love Jesus, but I don't care about it as much. And I would keep trying to convince him <laughs> and it was always wrong because his call, his work, he was committed, but he was really committed to me. Now, what's so interesting is now I've been away from the church. It's been six years since mm-hmm. I've been pastor. He's one of the few relationships that I have kept at the same level of depth because he cares deeply about me. Now, I also needed people who cared more about the mission, mm-hmm. you know, so they'd be willing to confront me if I was at a failure of nerve, or they'd be willing to challenge me when I didn't live up to the values. Those are really important mm. pieces. And in the, in the new book I have, I talk about relationships even more. I, talk, I use the analogy of an anvil that holds, like a blacksmith's anvil, that holds the steel when it's oozy on fire from, from the fire. And I say that a heavy anvil has partners, mentors, and friends. Mm. I've taken those six categories and put it into three. Partners are your allies. They're your people who are in the work with you. Mentors are the people who you go to and say, I need help. Coach me. They're therapists, spiritual directors, coaches. And you need friends. You need people who just Mm -hmm. show up and say, hey, do you want to go for a run? You want to hang out? You know? Yeah. Yeah. People you can be off. You know, you don't have to be on with them. Yeah. 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 I actually, I tell a story that when I was 19, I was, we were at a conference and uh, we decided our youth for Christ I worked for decided to have, it did a Disneyland and decided to have Mickey Mouse come and do a surprise. If you get Disney to have Mickey Mouse do a surprise appearance, they made somebody be Mickey Mouse's bodyguard. I was Mickey Mouse's bodyguard. I was 19 year old, <laughs> former captain of the wrestling team. My job was to make sure nobody got to Mickey. So when I got backstage to go check on Mickey and found her, with her head off, smoking a cigarette. <laughs> Mickey Mouse was a 4'11 woman who smoked. Chain-smoking <laughs> like, like, chain right? lady, yeah. Yeah. What was awesome about it was I thought to myself, she's got people in her life who don't care if she ever puts on the Mickey Mouse hat. Helmet, yeah, that's hat. good. But when she walks out the door, she's Mickey. It's so good. Yeah, it's so good. So yeah, oh gosh, that's so good. Um, I'm going to ask this final question. Um, uh, I don't have it written down, but the kind of the theme through the book and leading through uncharted territory is you, know, you start with the conviction, um, this idea of, uh, and sorry if I get these out of order, there's so much good content okay. in there. The idea of staying calm, you know, amidst all mm-hmm. this change, staying connected, yeah. which some of these relationships yeah. come and then stay the course. We've got 
yeah. a few months left of 2020. And it's been probably the hardest uh, year for these listeners to probably lead through. When it comes to those four themes, how what, what would just be some advice you'd give to, to leaders, even though we're going to lead in 2021, but just to maybe yeah. get to 2021, what would you leave them with? Yeah. Well, that what you just described is what comes out of this chapter on sabotage. So yeah. how do you survive sabotage? And the answer is you start with conviction. So I would say this is the moment that if you, if you knew nothing else, have some times where you guys sit together and ask, why do we exist? Why should we exist? Why should we be here in 2022? Like, what, is that, what difference do we make? What would, like, that's a deep conviction about our missional charism, our gift, our reason for being. Then if that's clear, then manage your own anxiety. Stay calm. Right? And especially stay calm when everybody else isn't. I always say that, you know, the ju- this, there's this quote about being the non-anxious presence in the room. I, I think anybody who's a non-anxious presence is dead. <laughs> I think we always have anxiety. But I often would go into the room and think and pray, God, help me be less anxious than everybody here because I trust you. Mm. Help me to literally pay real attention to my real anxiety. Because whatever you're doing out of anxiety, you're contributing to the same squirrel that is keeping, right? So if you're sitting, you're waking up in the morning going, I don't know how many days I can do this, or I don't think I can face anybody who's mad about masks, or many pastors have told me, I never expected to pastor people over technology. I want to be, I want to hug them and be close to them and talk to them. You know, pastors smell like they're sheep, right? (laughs) Okay. But if you can't, can you be faithful there? Mm. Can you calm down? Stay connected, which means especially stay connected to the people sabotaging, resisting. At the, wherever there is the most amount of anxiety and need, you've got to go closer, not further. And then be really clear that if this is action, we are going to stay the course. Mm. So if we're about discovery and not about water, we're going to drop the canoes, but we're going to keep going. Mm. And that piece of working that through can at least help you begin to figure out how each day you wake up faithfully and do the next thing. Well, Todd, thank you so much uh, for your humble heart, uh, your wisdom, and your guidance when it comes to leadership in uncharted territory. As I said at the beginning, I just don't think there's a greater book um, for what we're trying to do, right? As, as leaders who are trying to redefine our churches for movement, I don't think there's a better book out there that I have seen, and I've read a lot, more so than canoeing the mountains. Uh, The link to that book and all his books are in the show notes. Guys, got to get canoeing the mountains. Read it with your team. But Todd, thank you again so much. Guys, don't forget the vision of this podcast is a movement of Jesus through your local church in our lifetime. And I think that conversation really helped. When it, when it comes to any guests that I have on this, I'll never have a guest on, guys, just to keep it real, just to promote a book. But when there's content in a book, and by the way, I reached out to Todd, but when there's a guest that I can get on here and get on this show for you guys that really points towards that vision, a movement of Jesus through your local church, I'm gonna do everything I can to get them on. So thank you again, Todd. Guys, before we go, don't forget, just like, subscribe, uh, share with that one leader who could benefit from this content. We'll be back next week with the episode I had planned to do this week, all about our fall plan as a church, mission church, and really how it's going uh, these first three weeks. So until next week, this is Redefining Church. Church.